to Level with Emily. This is music by McLean Deemer for Firmament, the new puzzle adventure game from Cyan Worlds. They're the creators of Mist and Riven. McLean describes his music for Firmament as ambient industrial. And it is that. It's ambient in that it's very, at times, kind of slow moving and just kind of organically uh, flows through these chord changes or just whatever the the vibe is of the track. It's, It's ambient, yes. But also it can be very gritty and grimy at times, um, but never ugly. It's always beautiful and expansive and world-building in a lot of ways. So one of the things McLean does is he shows me a lot of the instruments uh, that he used to, well, there are only a handful of live instruments on this whole uh, soundtrack, but he does point out some synthesizers and some other things that he used. So that's good incentive to go check out the YouTube video, uh, which is, you know, obviously over at YouTube. Uh, so so visit that, watch the video, and you can see all these instruments that McLean talks about throughout the conversation. It's really cool. So check out our chat on YouTube, subscribe, get notifications, give us a like, all those amazing things. We would love that. Uh, please join us on Discord. That link is down in the show notes. And if you can support us on Patreon, we would be so grateful for your financial support. All right, here's McLean Deemer talking about his music for Firmament. Well, first of all, it's lovely to see you again, Emily. Thank you for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Firmament is uh, a new game that's coming out for uh, VR and uh, 2D, you know, or like flat screen, I guess is what they call it, um, from Cyan Worlds, uh, which is the studio that made Mist and Riven. Um, and then they kind of, you know, came back a few years ago after after the Mist thing had sort of uh, died down a bit with a game called Abduction. And this is their follow-up to that. So it's uh, it's 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 not a missed game. It's not in that world, but it's it's cut from the same cloth. So it's a ex- exploration, you know, beautiful environment, sort of mystery puzzle-solving game. Um, and it's it's really gorgeous. It's really cool. And if you like any of their other games, then you're going to love this one. Yeah, it's such. A, they just build such beautiful, colorful worlds with just amazing architecture. And you're just like, wow, mm-hmm. I want to go in that building. And then you get to go in it and it's really cool. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I love that stuff. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but these games, the the older games from the 90s in particular, Rift and uh, Rift, Mist and <laughs> Riven, um, were important to you personally, right? Yes, absolutely. So, uh Maybe in our third or fourth meeting that I had with the studio, I told them, look, I'm not going to be a fanboy in every meeting, but, you know, and I had to sort of continue to get all my my missed anecdotes out. Uh, but yeah, Mist was probably, not probably, it was, it was the, it was, it's a Mount Rushmore game for me, right? It's Mario and Zelda, although the Game Boy versions of those, because I didn't have a NES or a Super NES because my parents wouldn't let me. Um, but, but uh yeah, it's up there with those as far as I'm concerned for me um, mm-hmm. because it, really it was the first game that I remember playing and feeling like a different emotion than just the adrenaline rush of I beat that level, I beat that boss, you know. I remember having sort of complex feelings uh, and saying like what, you know, as you as the mystery of it starts to unfold, thinking like what is going on here and and 
not being, you know, saying, oh, I'll just, I'll just solve one more puzzle, or I just got to get to the end of this level, right? Um, that, that sort of complexity of emotion of, of not knowing what's happening and, and really wanting to get to the end of it, almost like a good book, which ironically, books are such a huge part of, of the, of the games. Right. Um, but that's what it felt like. It was, it unfolded like that, where it sort of becomes a downhill run where you say things start to click and you say, oh my God, I have to get to the next step of this. Cause I have to know mm-hmm. what's going on. And it, it was such a fundamental experience for me. Um, only looking back in retrospect, because I was probably fourteen or fifteen when I when I played it originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but not you know it it was the first thing where I felt like games are is a storytelling medium, not just a little fun diversion, right? Um, yes. And so yeah, it's it it's truly important to me, and and I've bought and rebought it so many times and so many different <laughs> systems and formats. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll I'll buy it. You know, anytime they repackage it, I'll I'll, I'll rebuy it. Yeah. I had a cousin and an uncle who were really into it. And I was in, well, my cousin was too in high school when, uh, when Mist came out. And I remember them talking about it and I remember them showing some of it to me. I also was not really allowed games. That's kind of Mm -hmm. an oversimplification, but also nails it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But um, I remember thinking, Oh, this is like a game for adults. That was like my mentality when I saw sure. it, and and in hindsight, I I can see why I thought that. But um, but it really talk about an immersive experience, right? At the time, yeah. I mean, just compared yeah. to so many other things. So uh, all of that to say that this these are games that are meaningful to you, and so you bring a certain. I think emotion and understanding to the score that, you know, someone like me who I didn't end up playing those games wouldn't have that same relationship. So talk to me about, you know, the moment you knew, oh my gosh, I'm going to score this new game from Cyan Worlds and and where that took you musically. Yeah, well, it started as these always do with uh, a conversation with uh, the creative heads of the studio to talk about what they wanted. Um, you know, it like I said, it's not a missed game, so it doesn't have some of the, what I consider the signature aspects of that, which for most people is probably just like pizzicato strings. I mean, it's it's like <laughs> yeah. it's so iconic. This the the sort of opening notes of of some of the the motifs that you hear repeatedly, mm-hmm. and and which is funny, sort of conveniently placed in in view of my camera here. Um, one of the first things I did was. Even though I knew it wasn't a missed game, I know how important it is to sort of carry on that legacy that the you know of the studio, and a lot of those people are still there uh, mm-hmm. from the Mist and Riven days. And I thought, well, I got to I got to put some of that DNA into the music. So I did some research, and I found that um, uh, Robin Miller, who's one of the two Miller brothers that founded Cyan. Um, you know, he did, he did a lot of the design and he did all the music. And I, so mm-hmm. I was just trying to find some interviews with him where he talked about his process and all that. Mm-hmm. And I found something that said, it was, I think it's an old a GDC talk from maybe 10 years ago where he did like a classic postmortem talking about it. And he said, originally the game wasn't going to have any music. Uh, and they, and they realized that that wasn't going to work, you know, as they were sort of getting along in development, but it was also getting down to crunch time. So he just sort of cranked something out. He said he'd wrote the whole score in two weeks. Right. And and he did it all on this, not this exact one, but this model of keyboard. So this is um, an Emu Proteus uh, Master Performance System plus orchestral. It's like a, it's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, not very gracefully named, but 
there's there's sort of multiple iterations of of the sounds that are in that keyboard, and I I was finding cheaper options and easier options online to buy like little rack mount units with no keys or anything. And mm-hmm. I was like, I gotta I gotta find the real thing. I have to. And I was having a lot of trouble. I I could only find them like in Europe or in Japan, and people were you oh. know charging like what I think is absurd prices because it's not a desirable keyboard. So I'm like, I'm not going to pay that much for, you know, this thing is kind of one step above a toy, but it has the <laughs> essence in it. And I need that. Right. So then eventually I tracked someone down. I, I was looking like Craigslist, eBay, Facebook marketplace, and eventually on, on offerup.com, uh, I found someone uh, lo- somewhat local who had one for sale for a, a good price. And uh, I drove, it was like a 45 minute drive to get there. And <laughs> I, 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 Whenever I'm in that situation, I'm so excited to buy something like that. I try mm-hmm. not to like super geek out because the person's selling it; and they just want the money. <laughs> they don't care. I'm like, but this is the keyboard that Mist was written on. You know, like this guy doesn't care. Um, <laughs> so I was trying not to be like that. But yeah. uh, anyway, once I got it, I was like, oh my god! And then I started scrolling through the, the presets because unlike a unlike a synthesizer where you know you sort of start from scratch and have to build your own sound, this is. Um, Forgive me for for the tech talk. This is what they call a rompler, which is a uh, sort of a portmanteau of rom, rom, and sampler, and it basically just means it's like a crappy sort of sampler. So so the sounds are what they are, and yeah. they're very low resolution, low bit rate. But there's you can't change them. You know, there's no filter. There's no there's no there's none of the stuff we associate with synth, uh, pure okay. sort of analog synthesis. Yeah, the sounds are what they are. So I'm scrolling through the presets and just banging on keys like, okay, cool, okay, cool, next one. And then I'd get, you know, I'd get to one and be like, oh my God, this is the sound. And then I'd realize he didn't even do anything special with it. It was like, you know, there's like this one sort of phasey gong sound that again, once you hear it, if you know the game, it's like iconic. It's just the sound in the keyboard. There's nothing special on it. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I maybe I can like be a little nicer on myself if I'm using presets on my other keyboards. It's like, who cares? It's just, if it sounds good, then it works. Right. But I, I so I went through it and I wrote down. I have my little notebook here. I just, you know, I didn't go through every patch, but I went through a bunch of them and was like, this is a missed sound. This is a missed sound. This is a missed wow. sound. Um, and then again, you know, knowing that if I was going to put it in firmament, that I would have to disguise it, but it has to be in there. So it's not, it's, they're not on every track, but they're on a lot of them. And they're, you know, heavily, heavily processed um, to the point where most people probably won't recognize it, but maybe I'll do some fun sort of behind the scenes thing eventually. Yeah. Um, so that was my initial idea. I was like, it just has to start with that and then let's warp it. And, and, and what I think works for the concept of the game is that I don't want to spoil anything. It's gonna be very difficult to not spoil anything. Um, because the story, you know, is, is the, the puzzles are part of it, but the uncovering of the story is a big part of why you would want to play the game. But there's this notion of, um, of, messages right and sort of decaying sort of signals that you get from from you know the ether that you're around or the environment that you're around and and it's that's how you start to piece together the story and this it ties into something that i've been obsessed with uh and this is the first time i've had a chance to explore this idea for real um of you know what does music sound like if let's say you're uh planet earth you send out a signal and and 10 million light years away you receive that signal well there's no way it's going to get to you perfectly right. so what does that sound like and how do you interpret that and it's an idea that i've i've wanted to explore 
based on other projects I've demoed for, things that got canceled, you know, things that ha- will never come to fruition. But it's an idea I've been kind of obsessed with uh, for, for for several years. And as I've slow, especially as I've slowly acquired, you know, other electronic gear and, and synthesizer equipment and stuff. In my mind, there's this, been this thing building up, and, and finally, this is the game I've gotten to to um, explore it on for real. So I'm very excited for people to hear that. I hope they like it. Uh, but yeah, it, it so it ties into that and uh, and the idea of similar. I, I've been obsessed with the idea of the. Do you know about the golden record that was on the Voyager satellite oh, that they yeah. sent in the 70s? Yeah, there's Bach yeah, on so, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and Chuck Berry. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so for people who aren't familiar, uh, when um, NASA was sending out the Voyager satellites, knowing that these were never coming back. They're going. They fired them off into space with the intention of of just seeing, you know, getting them as far as they could possibly go. And what's amazing is that it's been, you know, forty five years now, um, yeah. and they're still sending signals back to Earth, which is unbelievable. Yeah. But on, on one of the, I think it's the first one. They they sent out literally a golden vinyl, or it's not a vinyl. It's it's you know gold, but it's a yeah. record, right? It's mm-hmm. an LP. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it has music on it, and it has speeches on it, and it has information that's encoded, you know, imagery like representation of the man and a woman form mm-hmm, and some other mm-hmm. stuff. But the idea is that it's as simple as possible, so that if somebody finds it, they can kind of decode it and learn about Earth and right? learn how to play it. Right? There's like a there's like instructions on how to make that record make sound too. From yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, I mean, a brilliant concept. It's so, so funny cool. that it's on it's on a, a, a record, but. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. that's the best we could do, and you know it's fully analog, right? There's there's no uh, exactly there's no electronics required. Mm-hmm. So so again, that idea. What, what so the idea of if you're the alien civilization and you receive that record and you hear it, you know, to us we hear Chuck Berry and Bach and you know a speech. I forget what speech it is, but yeah. to them it's it's alien culture, right? So mm-hmm. so just sort of playing with that idea of what does that what does that sound like musically, um, and one one of the references that I was given from the studio, ironically, was um, a Brian Eno album called Apollo, which which came out in 1980, 80, 81, and is, is uh, you know, nominally about space exploration and the space program or whatever, but it's, it's, it's an Eno record. So it's all ambient and washed out and stuff. And, and uh, uh, I, I love, it. I, I, you know, it's, in, re- in hindsight, I've learned this one of his most famous records. I wasn't familiar with it because he's one of those guys that's so prolific that I just, you know, eventually you have to sort of discover somebody for yourself. And I discovered Brian Eno at the age of 40 in, uh, <laughs> or at least this record, uh, you know, in yeah. 2022. But yeah, it, it just all kind of made sense. All these ideas were coalescing in my mind. I thought, oh, okay, great. This, these are all things I've been thinking about mm-hmm. and waiting for. And this is finally the project where I'm going to get to explore them. And I mean, it's so very different than anything you've been able to explore, at least certainly things that we've talked about. You mentioned that some of these things you've explored on projects that haven't come to fruition, but, you know, the things that we've talked about, this is so different than than those things. And I and I really love that. And I, I um, it, it's just, it's like, 
it's just music that you can have on and it's pleasant. Like it's, mm. um, uh, well, I'll tell you for sure, in particular, Sun on St. Andrew. And, and in mm-hmm. a lot of the tracks, everything shifts very slowly. You know, there's nothing is abrupt. There's nothing epic about, you know, when you think of the word epic in terms of video games anyway. And yeah. it's, it's just, you know, reverby and a lots, lots of open intervals and just space, all these mm-hmm. different ways that you're giving us the, the impression of just wide open space. between chords to almost to a point of silence in some mm-hmm. some tracks you know and um, I just I loved that slow shift uh, that happens so often so so I, I can only imagine that takes some amount of restraint as a composer to to write that way does it you would think so but uh, <laughs> but for me that's just what comes naturally awesome. and, and I've said, I've said this before. You know, it's funny. I was texting with our, our mutual friend Austin Wintery yesterday because yes. uh, this will sort of timestamp this. But a, a new game that he worked on came out, and I was uh, just saying congratulations. And it's sort of all combat music, and and we were just, it's you know, I probably said it too much, which is why my reputation precedes me. But this idea that I'm just not, I, I don't like that music. Uh, I don't really like writing it. I, I probably should stop saying it publicly because it's, <laughs> you know, it is a part of the job. But um, we were kind of joking around about that. And I said, you know, I've said this as a counterpoint to them. Like the thing that I am good at, the stuff that just comes naturally is slow and sad and pretty, right? It's just, mm-hmm. that's just what comes out of me when I sit down at a piano. And, and I, maybe I said this the last time we talked. But I've learned over the years that my internal BPM is 70. That's just every time wow. I start something and then I hit the little tap tempo button, it's always within a few clicks of 70. It's just it's just wow. where I sit. Yeah. Um, and so so this was th- this is this was great because there's no combat music, right? And I just got to yeah. let these ideas sort of come out. And and I've tried I've tried to do and I have, but I've done stuff in that sense that's very slowly evolving and doesn't have a lot of. Um, uh, you know, flashy sort of tricks with Guild Wars, but with an orchestra, it's got to be interesting, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, I guess you can just have them play a chord, you know, for, for forever. But when it's human beings making it, right, you're limited by the length of the bow and, and the, bre- the breath capacity or the mm-hmm. lung capacity of the wind players. There's certain things that force you to just keep things moving, right? The nature of the instrument. Yes. With electronics, it's it's much easier, uh, for better or for worse. And then I, I also love this idea. This is another idea I've tried to explore when I can. The idea of, uh, uh, and this is not a revolutionary idea to me, but it's it's you know part of the, my creative process. Letting the reverb and delay and effects be part of the instrument. So you know you play a sound, but it's so buried in stuff that you just let it trail away, and you have to clear everything out because I want. I want you to be listening until the absolute last possible second, right? Mm. Because there's interesting things happening at the very end. It's not all about the initial sound. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, this was an amazing playground to just foster that stuff. And, and I kind of, I, I, I almost think of it, as I was writing it, I, th- I, I was thinking of it less as a soundtrack to a game because it's not so 
hand tailored to narrative moments. Mm-hmm. It's it really is just an album that then is sort of put in the game. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how I think about it. And to me, you know, I was describing it to people as a, uh, the genre as um, ambient industrial, right? Because it's it's very sparse and sort of washed out, but it's gritty and distorted and, yes. and slightly unpleasant. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. And then I also learned in in working on this through the person who mixed it and mastered it, uh, a guy named Nathan Moody, who's a brilliant uh, composer in his own right um, and mix engineer and mastering engineer. Uh, he was sort of tapped into the actual, the real kind of industrial scene in, in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm. And he was telling me about a genre called power ambient, which I love. I love the idea of power ambient, you know, yeah. which yeah. is maybe another level of intensity above this, but but it's, it's again, cut from the same cloth. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's it was so nice to just finally release that pressure valve. Like this kind of music is just in me, and I haven't had a, a, a public forum to kind of let it out. And, and mm-hmm. I and I got to just go nuts with so many ideas that I've had for so long. Um, where where every track started, you know, with a blank session, no templates, and just yeah. finger painting, and then sort of assembling it at the end. And that that was really gratifying. So you were mentioning how like the pizzicato strings are such a such a touchstone sound for the earlier games and you know you also said this is not a sequel of those games but mm-hmm. but that by taking that out you know so many of the attacks in your music um, for firmament are so gentle I mean everything mm-hmm. and I loved that I loved it just felt very cared for, you know what I mean? In that way, not that pizzicato strings don't sound like that. It's just a different, it's a different um, vibe you get from it, right? When everything is just kind of, you're stepping into the room with dignity and grace uh, with each attack. And and I really loved that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can think of it as as, um, musical erosion, right? Right, if if the music is coming at, at you from a great distance physically and temporally, Mm-hmm. then it's not going to be sharp, right? The same way mountains get worn down over time or you grind your teeth down or, you know what I mean? All, all, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. Where it's just, it's all sort of filed off and sanded off and, and blurry mm-hmm. and come, you know, sometimes you hear the echo first before the actual signal and, you know, all that yeah. stuff. It's all just kind of jumbled up. Before we hit record, you mentioned that there was maybe one acoustic instrument in the whole thing. Now, I thought I heard some guitar, and maybe it was electric guitar, but I thought I heard some string movements at some point. So I don't know, maybe that was the instrument. But tell us about, what was the name of that instrument again from India? Uh, Yes, it's called the S-Raj, E-S-R-A-J. 
Okay. And it, it, it almost looks like if you took a sitar and shrunk it down to about a quarter size. Okay. Uh, but then, you, but then you played it with a, a bow. Sure. And so it, it has all those things like the sympathetic strings running underneath it. Mm-hmm. But you really only, you know, it has multiple strings, but you really only play one, and everything else is either huh. droning or resonating as you play. Oh, nice. And uh, and it has those, you know, huge round frets. Kind of, I mean, truly just like a like a sitar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the body has. Uh, let me see if I can. Let me let me grab it. This won't be yeah, great yeah. for the audio listeners, but for the video watchers, it might be yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, do it. If I fa- if I fall in the background, you know, you can just edit that out. <laughs> it does look like a little tiny sitar. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did break a string on it, which changing the strings on these is not easy. So it's, oh it will remain broken for quite some time. But. Um, <laughs> You know the body is is uh, mm-hmm. almost a gourd like shape, and it has a skin covering it, kind of uh, you know okay. like a bit like a banjo. Yeah, and then it has these four strings. But again, those are the, you really only play the top one. It's definitely okay. not in tune, so I won't play it. Um, <laughs> and then all of these, these crazy amount of tuning pegs. These are all the sympathetic strings. Oh my! And so it, between the the membrane head on the body and the sympathetic strings, it has kind of a built built-in reverb almost. Right. It's a, once I heard it, it's a sound that I was like, oh, I've heard that before. And I always thought it was just a weirdly recorded violin, right? Because when you watch people play it, they're so fluid. I mean, okay. I can't play it as fast, but, you know, not just physically bending it, but the speed with which they move around the neck is unbelievable. And, and I realized cool. I'd, I'd heard that sound for years in, in you know, Indian music recordings and, and you know, Beatles songs even, right, that, that use Indian instruments. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just thought it was like, oh, they recorded this and, you know, this is my total cultural bias and please forgive me. But I was like, oh, they just don't have as good equipment to record it. So they use some weird mic and, you know, crappy tape and and then just buried it in reverb. But it's not. It's kind of just the way it sounds. <laughs> so it's it's a beautiful instrument. And and mm-hmm. it's, it's only on one track. Um, and yeah, it's just thoroughly mangled with, with sound effects. But it's in there. Which track um, did you put it on? It's on processing. It's that thing that kind of is well it's the lead line you know uh, I, I don't think it's doubled with anything okay but it is thoroughly mangled with with a bunch of effects Other so as I was saying this, there's two acoustic instruments, but it's it's kind of a it's a, it's a trick. So the other one is this thing, yeah, which is called a, either a yuhiko or a yohiko. It's a Finnish fiddle, okay. and there's um, a similar version from Norway called uh, uh, tagelharpa. Oh yeah, uh, which is sort of a Viking type instrument, slightly different body construction. Mm-hmm. And one one extra string, but these are these are uh, wound horsehair, so they're very. And then the bow oh. is horsehair, so it's just like super scratchy, gnarly sounding. Yeah. Um, and that one is on deep in the mines, okay. but I didn't play it. I, I recorded it and made a contact instrument of it, so it's still kind of a electronic instrument that's like been thoroughly. Manip- it's doing things that you can't literally do on <laughs> on the actual instrument.
then the string thing that you're hearing that that's on a lot of tracks is uh, the Fender Bass Six, which I'll, let me grab that off okay. the wall. Okay, yeah, do it. Or I guess it's the Squire. Oh, as model, in but, six but it's, strings. But it's, okay. Yeah, but it's based okay. on the based on the original one. So in the in the '60s, um, Fender tried to make. I don't know if you can see that. Oh yeah. Uh, they tried to make, well, they did. Uh, they made um, a bass player for guitar players, or bass for guitar players, which is what I am. Yeah. So it's it's long scale, almost like a, a baritone guitar, but it's it's a full octave below the guitar. Mm-hmm. You can't, if you try to play it like a guitar, it's that's, you know, kind of a mistake. You can play some chords on it, but because mm-hmm. it's so low, that just turns to mush unless you're playing in, in higher registers. Yep. But um, it's sort of fam- most famously used. Uh, John Lennon and George Harrison played it on the Let It Be sessions whenever Paul was playing piano um, or or acoustic guitar. So some of the videos you can see, or like in the recent Get Back documentary, when when in the final sessions when they're playing live, not on the rooftop, but in the studio, Mm -hmm. you'll sometimes see John playing one of these. Oh, cool. Um, And then uh, Robert Smith used it a lot in in The Cure. Okay. Um, in fact, he used a black one that looked exactly like this. I was channeling, oh, channeling a little bit of Robert Smith. <laughs> nice. But, uh, but it's it's a great sound. And so the very first demo that I did for the um, for the studio, I sent them four tracks that were like, here's some prototypes. And there are ranges of sound, you know, that we can go for on this from, you know, kind of lightly processed to like extreme levels of processing. And And three out of the four of those ended up in the game. One of them I, I withdrew. I was like, I, I like this too much and no offense, but I want to turn this into like a personal project. And they said, okay, <laughs> so so stay tuned. That'll come out on, so, you know, something nice. probably not related to a game at some point in the future. Uh, but the track, let's see, I think it's, uh, yeah. So the Glacial Realm, which is the second track on, on the album, has yeah. me playing harmonics on that thing. Oh, is that like the, there's like augmented stuff going on that you do? And, yes. Yep. I, 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 I retuned it so that I could hit the melody that I wanted. Couple times I play behind behind the bridge, right? Like so, uh, it's not tu- it's not tuned properly. But at the end, okay. I, I play I play back here, you know. Yep. Oh, cool. Yep. Yep. And again, it's it's a wash in effects. But um, when I sent it to them, the the creative director Eric Anderson was like, "Oh my god!" He's like, "This sounds like music that is being made on you know high tension wires." And I and I love that sound. It was the first thing that he really responded to very uh, sort of strongly. Oh, cool! And that was that was my that was my entry point. That was like uh, going back to what we we're talking about earlier. You know, I have the missed keyboard. I had this idea of the Voyager gold record and all that stuff. But when he said music that's being made on high tension wires, I thought, great, that's a great sort of summary of what this should sound like. And so let me follow that thread. Mm-hmm. So that the the that instrument, the bass six, um, 
appears on the most tracks because I, you know, it's it kind of sets the tone for the very first map that you see. Yeah. Talk to me about the, the you know, all of the open intervals and, you know, if there's a melodic line of any kind, it's usually unison or if it's harmonized, it's in these open like fourths and fifths. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that stuff comes out a lot in, uh, in the third map, so I, I, I try not to spoil anything again, but um, <laughs> there's, as you progress through it, there's one of the last maps that you're in, they wanted it to sort of settle down from the, the chaos. There's, there's uh, maybe I can talk about this. This is not a huge spoiler, I don't think. Um, there's three sort of primary maps. There's mm-hmm. one, there's uh, the glacial, they call them realms, the glacial realm. Uh, there's the, uh, oh my gosh, I'm being put on the spot. Uh, there's, uh, <laughs> there's, oh, what are they? What is it called? Well, I'll just describe them. So there's a glacier yeah. area. There's an area that is like uh, industrial and sort of your. There's these pools of sulfur that that you see these huge sort of mechanisms and and industrial structures coming out of. Mm-hmm. And then there's, um, I think it's called orchard. So that so that's more like a conservatory, a very sort of lush organic mm-hmm. space, and so. As it, you progress through those areas, they wanted it to go from cold and icy and spiky to then like, a, you know, a, like almost like you're licking a battery. That's kind of what the, the sulfur one is like. Uh, it's sort of buzzy and electric and, and, yeah. and nasty sounding. Orchard one is they wanted it to be warm and spacious and and mm-hmm. and you know inviting. So there's a challenge of doing that with electronic instruments because they're not inherent. You know they're not inherently sort of warm in the in the the, the stereotypical sense. Mm-hmm. But that's where a lot of those open intervals come into play. Where the, you hear those most in that particular level because okay. it just it it allows the um, it allows again like the effects to fill in the gaps. But those open fourths and fifths is just sort of uh, it's a very calming. Uh, set of intervals. And then you can kind of just, you know, this is obviously something that uh, WC discovered 150 years ago. You can just kind of like, they sort of exist on the outside of any key. They just kind of are there and you can mix and match and they can just sort of stack in any way you want Mm -hmm. them and kind of just sound good, right? You don't don't have to worry about uh, the the rules of Western harmony um, based on major this and minor that right uh, so yeah I, I thought i thought those that was a good uh, an opportunity to explore that kind of tonality for that particular area There's a track toward the end, I think it is, uh, called Echoes of Past Futures. And um, and I really love how you're creating percussion without using percussion, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. 
aspect of it. Because even that track right away starts off with something rhythmic, but it's not a, a percussion instrument. Yeah, that one is... Uh... That one was a lot of fun. So ah, this is so tough to not spoil it, but <laughs> it, it, it makes it makes sense for when you're where you're at in the game, the level of technology that you're going to encounter. Okay. I have some of that stuff physically, right? So that was one where uh, it had to have energy, but it had to call back to a very specific period of time in 20th century music. So it's the most kind of intentionally retro sounding. Oh, cool. Um, even though you know it's not it's not a pastiche, I don't think it's not it's not like a, well, I don't want to. It's not yeah. it's not. I'm not trying to replicate John Carter, you know, or yeah. John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Um, yeah, maybe yeah, I'm yeah. trying to replicate John Carter on Mars. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it, you know, I, I'm using some analog synthesizers, which are just kind of off off camera here. Mm -hmm. um, and then the percussion aspect was an, a thing where I forget what the what the initial sound was, but I love the idea of taking percussive sounds. And then applying delay to them, and and just tweaking the the feedback, you know, and and timing of it all mm -hmm. until you get a percussion track. So so even though it sounds like a constant rhythm, it's really just like one hit on a downbeat every every measure. Yeah. And then all the other stuff that's ping ponging back and forth is just the delay happening. And then it's run through this amazing plugin, which I would—I don't have—I wish I had one of these physically. Uh, but there's there's a, an electronic, an experimental electronic artist, and he's a, a very popular YouTuber over the last couple of years. A German guy named Heinbach, uh, H A I N B A C H. And, he, and if you're into ASMR, I'm not, but he's—he yeah. uh, has this amazing sort of low, resonant, very soft German accent voice, mm -hmm. and he very calmly explains all this amazing stuff. And he and he's sort of he was an inspiration in the sense that a lot of his music is based on buying old electronics test equipment that happened to generate sound. Okay. So he, his studio is filled with all these amazing old like tube things with huge dials and stuff from the fifties and like old weird Soviet synths and wow, you know, radio equipment stuff that's not designed to make music. And then he just takes it all, manipulates it, and oh, and cool. a lot of times we'll record stuff to tape and and uh, makes amazing music. So he has a series of plugins that he's released one of which is called the Gong Amp. And this is a real thing. And then they physically modeled it for the plug-in. But basically, it's literally a gong about, you know, maybe 18 inches in, in diameter. And, you know, it's it's set up... I, I'm probably going to... I'm probably getting this wrong, so forgive me. But it's set up so that you run sound through it as if it's, you know, instead of... So instead of a speaker cone vibrating, it's this gong vibrating. Oh, cool. And it adds, it adds that metallic, you know, sheen and, and reverb to... And all those crazy overtones... Uh, <laughs> to the original sound. And so the and then you can do things like muffle it with a pillow to deaden the decay time. They you can hang chains in front of it so that as it vibrates it rattles on, on the gong. So all that stuff is modeled in this plugin. <laughs> and that's why that that clanging sound sounds so metallic is cuz I'm running it through that plugin. Oh cool. Um anyway, <laughs> that's 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 what's going on there. Uh but yeah, it's that was the only one that really needed to drive the moment in the story that it's happening and the area that you're at, it, it, it all makes sense, but it needed to start pushing you forward and get your, get your heart pumping. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, you mentioned how writing music like this is just intrinsically you. Like, it just kind of flows from you and you kind of implied on, you know, maybe releasing something. I mean, has this kind of sparked a desire in you to to just uh, create more music like this for the sake of creating more music like this? Yeah, I, I have um, I have a few things that are kind of in the can that I'm waiting for the right time to release. And, and I have to, you know, like anything, it's I got to just sit down and spend a month finishing two or three things yeah. and waiting for that magical day when I'll have the time to do that or instead of making, <laughs> making the time. Yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, my, uh, this life and career, I'm very lucky to do it. And then like anything, you know, that if you get known for, especially in a creative field, you get asked to do that over and over again. And, mm-hmm. and, and look, the answer is always yes. If somebody comes to me and says, we'd love you to do this because we heard this one thing you've already done. Are you available? Yes, of course I am, because I want to keep doing this for a living. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and you know I'm very ha- and and I've actually been very lucky to mostly avoid writing on types of projects or writing types of music that I don't like, things like you know commercial jingles or trailer music stuff that is mm-hmm. fine, but you know other people can do that, and that's not really that's not to me that's not my path. Yeah, so I've been lucky, I've been lucky to do that, but but eventually as a creative person you you do want some variety. You know, my background before getting into big, grand orchestral writing for Guild Wars was was being in bands and and producing music that way. Um, and then I sort of shunned that specifically because I prefer to just kind of work alone. I'm not I'm not a group work kind of guy, so uh, <laughs> I like to I like to mostly work alone. And I like collaborating, but when it comes down to actually working on something, I'd rather just be alone in my room with all my toys. Yeah. Um, and so orchestral writing rewards that, but it's but it you know. It's it's only one outlet, and and you don't always get the opportunity to do it live, which is sort of how you get to execute it at the highest level. But with this kind of music, I get I can do it all, right? And so I did it all for the most part last year on on Salt and Sacrifice uh, with a yeah. couple of additional soloists. But for the most part, that was made here, just me doing it on my own. And this one is a hundred percent on my own. Uh, and maybe that's the first time I've ever put out anything. I think it wow. is. This might be the first time I've ever put out any sort of release where it was 100% me from top to bottom. Oh, wow. um, and and it, it did sort of stir something in me where I was like, you know, I can just do this. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it doesn't have to be a 20-track album. You know, it could be a six-track EP. Like, who cares? Just just put it out there. Um, and, you know, once I'm sort of free of the constraints of having to write for a project or what in my mind used to be like, if you're going to put out music in, with a band, you got to write songs. And I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a great songwriter. Uh, so I felt... If I'm doing that alone, I feel hamstrung by my inability to kind of, you know, write songs the way I, I want them to be written. But this kind of thing, yeah, I can just crank it out. And there's people doing that, right? Like Heinbach is a guy that does that. Or, or Nathan, the guy who mastered the album and mixed it, he puts out two or three of these kinds of things a year. Mm-hmm. There's a woman named um, Lisa Belladonna, who's also kind of an influencer in the, in the synth community. But she's an unbelievable keyboardist and electronic musician uh, and an advocate for electronic music, and and she just cranks albums out, and I'm like, you know, what is what's stopping me? You know, so, no, so the answer is nothing. The answer is me, uh, and and I think that you know, it, it's it, it sort of crystallized that thought in my head where I I don't have to wait for people to come to me, especially because I do have work that pays the bills. So why not just kind of you know make something for my own sake uh, mm-hmm. when I have some downtime? And so I think there'll be more of that in the future. It might not be as extreme as some of this stuff. Um, but you know, I, I really like this kind of music and I, and I need, and I need an outlet for it. So there'll, there'll be more coming. 
Yeah. Um, how do you, if I may ask, uh, kind of balance your work-life situation? Do you keep pretty strict hours of I'm working in the studio Monday through Friday and then my weekends are mine to do all the other things I need to do to survive as an adult? I mean, how does that, how does that play out for you? Yeah, it's, it, it is that. So, so the reason, uh, well, it, it is sort of nine to five. The, the reason I'm in this studio that I'm in currently was because for years I was working from home mm-hmm. and realized that I had started to, it, it happens slowly, right? Uh, it, where you start to develop bad habits. Yeah. You start to get um, a little weird. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was, I was uh, initially when I first started doing it after years of commuting and working in offices, even when I was getting into games, you know, in my civilian life, pre-games, I was working in offices or retail or working at grocery stores and things. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job in games and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And so, you know, there's a long honeymoon period where you don't mind the commute and you want to go to the office because there's, there's creative energy and excitement. You get to see your friends. Um, and after many years of that, when I was physically working in the office at ArenaNet when I was living in Seattle, you know, and I took over the music, music requires you to go so far inside that, every, you know, a a pin drop becomes a distraction, you know, at least for me. And so the commute was a distraction. I was in a mostly, you know, a, 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 a treated room, but not soundproof. So I could hear people talking outside. Somebody comes by and knocks on the door and says, hey, let's get lunch. <laughs> All just completely breaks your concentration. Yep. And so then I would stay there really late just because I would wait for people to leave and then start working on something at 5 or 6 p.m., which is not also not healthy. So when I first started working from home, I thought, this is amazing. Like I could just roll out of bed, make a cup of coffee, and then immediately start working, you know, mm-hmm. 20 minutes after I, I get up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I can work as long as I need to. And then when I'm done, I'm home and I can relax. Mm-hmm. And that was good for a while. But yeah, eventually it becomes, well, I'm not going to take a shower today or I'm not going to get dressed or, you know, I'm working, but let me just let me just get up and make lunch or get a snack real quick or, you know, check Facebook or, you know. So what was happening, and then, you know, I, I always try to um, have dinner with my wife when when I can, and then she would get home, so, so I would start to panic and be like, uh, I got to clean up the house a little bit, and, you know, you're doing chores, <laughs> and I, you know, sit down and have dinner, and they say, I just got to finish this one thing after dinner, it's only, it'll only take me half an hour, mm-hmm. and that turns into, you know, you're at the computer until midnight, yeah. and it was that endless sort of cycle, and six hours of work would take 12 hours in sitting at the computer, right? Yeah. So eventually I just decided I got to get out and, and I need to treat this like a job, not rob it of, you know, the joy that I feel getting to write music every day, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I have to, I have to sort of add some structure to this um, and, and have a place where I go. And when I'm there, I'm working. And when I leave, I'm not. And, and that's worked out really well. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that changed for me when I started working much more from home and this is such a stupid, simple thing was, um, but in terms of breaking concentration, I had to put everything on do not disturb. And so it takes so long to recover from that distraction. You know, it could be 20 minutes to get back to where I was if I just look at a text and I start answering texts or something like that. Exactly. And that was, yeah. that was huge, huge for me. And and now I'm on, I'm on it more than I'm off it probably. Yeah. Um, just to make sure I can stay stay focused. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, well back to firmament, 
you know, we've talked about how this is really your style and 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 all of um, you know intrinsic to to the way you compose. You know, we talk about melody so much, and and the absence of it uh, is is not. It's not a. Neg- I know I'm not enunciating this very well, but it's not a negative thing to not have melody. Is it a difficult thing? Um, to not have melody. That was a terrible question, but you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not answering. I'm not asking. I even have it written down. Um, but is it, is it, did you struggle with at all, um, putting in ideas and then saying that's too much? No, uh, again, because uh, to me, there's, there is a lack of sort of continuous melody, right? There's nothing that's, that's mm-hmm. probably even two measures or four measures, certainly. Right. But there's, there's always at least a little hook or some sort of thread that is carried throughout all of them. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, like I said, it's it's sort of, it all starts with a blank session, an empty session with no nothing saved, no no presets, no templates, nothing. Um, and, I, and I play around until I find a hook that works for me. Mm. So every one of these tracks has at least that. And whether other people pick up on that or not, you know, is not for me to decide. Yeah. But um, yeah, everything started with at least some semblance of an idea that I would I could then say this is the core of of this track and I'll, and then I'll build around it. Mm-hmm. And that could be um, I'm trying to think of a, of a particular example. There's there's one track on here that is actually um, I, I found my old audition tape for when I applied to Berkeley College of Music. Wow. Um, and I, ha- I have a box full of tapes that I haven't thrown out. And then, but but I didn't have a way to play them for a long time because I, I had gotten rid of the four track that I used to have as a kid, which I should have kept it because it, it'd be worth a lot of money these days. <laughs> I ended up I ended up buying a, a replacement to to be able to digitize some of these old tapes that I had. Mm-hmm. And I was just going through them, and and at one point I found yeah this audition tape, and it's I I, I listened to it now. I'm like I, they let me in that school playing this tape, you know. <laughs> I, I hope that the standards are are a little higher, but. Um, <laughs> It's me just running through some scales and and running through some solo guitar pieces to just prove to them that I could play. I think what if I'm piecing this together properly, I think that I applied and I asked my guitar teacher at the time for a letter of recommendation. Mm-hmm. And I think he might have been honest on it, which was basically like McLean is talented, but doesn't like to practice. So maybe doesn't have some of the initiative that he should have, which <laughs> yeah. is still very true, at least with guitar. I hate practicing. Yeah. Um, but but they asked me. To, to put together this tape with, you know, a sort of shopping list of items that had to be on there. Mm-hmm. So I did, and I got in. Anyway, the rest is history, and here I am. <laughs> but I was listening to it, and and I grabbed, there's one part where there's a, uh, an original piece on there. So some of it was like solo guitar arrangements of like jazz standards and things like that, doing mm-hmm. that where you're playing the voice leading and the bass line at the same time. And then one of them is an, an original piece, and it's all tons of harmonics and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, this sounds cool. So, so I, I took, I digitized it and then I took that little, like three seconds of it where there's just a bunch of cool things happening all at once, but it sounds, yeah. you know, it's a 25 year old tape um, and it's all warbly and low fidelity and stuff. And then I just stretched, I literally stretched it as far as the computer would allow me. And they, eventually it was like, you can't, you know, you've reached the limits of what, of what <laughs> this piece of software can do. You have to stop. So, but I wanted, I wanted to hear both the, the music stretched out that far and then mm-hmm. also the digital artifacts that come along with that. Sure. Um, and, you know, to me, so then 
that's not a melody. It's not even a motif, like a melodic, like a melodic idea, but it's, it's an idea. And then the music is built around that. So let, let me, let me find which one that is. Okay. Power station. Let's say, actually, it might be this track. It might be frozen footsteps. Truthfully, I'm not entirely sure which one it is, but one of these tracks has that as the foundation of it. Uh, maybe it's the spire. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Anyway, there's other tracks that use a similar idea of, of taking yeah. taking something and stretching it to the absolute breaking point. And, and I sure. would say most of the first probably five or six tracks have that as some sort of synth pad foundation, oh, okay. and where it's not where it's not tonal. It's just mm-hmm. you know it's warbly and it's in between notes and and just you know it it sets a type of semi musical drone. then uh, what I was what I wanted to talk about was in frozen footsteps yeah uh, I had this I, I put together a video if you sort of track it down on my Instagram account it's there from from I don't know maybe six or eight months ago the the hook of that one is was me just being like what what can I do that how do I start this track in a non-musical way and I took I took this device which I bought off of Etsy okay. from an account called electro lobotomy and it's this guy that just makes weird noise instruments. So this is, it's two springs. Oh, cool. That are roughly, you know, they're different sizes and, and different pitches, I guess. They're not really Tension, a pitch, but yeah. they sound different. Mm-hmm. And then it has these knobs, one of which is a volume knob and one of which is a bias knob. And you can sort of like, I, I know nothing about electronics, but you can turn it to the <laughs> point where it's it's just barely getting enough electricity to, to amplify the sound. So oh, it'll cool. like start to crackle and sort of break up a little bit. And it's kind of, I mean, it's basically like a spring reverb. Like I can, you can shout into it, you know, it's electric, you plug it in. Mm-hmm. You can shout into it and it sounds like you're shouting into a guitar pickup or a nice. spring reverb or something like that. But it's so noisy on purpose. It's designed so that like just even physically touching this box part of it will make so much noise when it's plugged in. <laughs> and and it's it's uh, it's over there, so I, I can't grab it at the moment. But I, I have a, a dust buster in the studio <laughs> and I just turned it on and, and I ran it over it. And so you hear the like of it but through these springs wow and then i also was just like banging it on it and it makes so Mm. much noise when you bang it uh (laughs) because you have to amplify it significantly to get any sound out of it so when you touch it it's like it just sounds like the world is ending So in that in that track, I mean, if you know that that's what I'm doing, hitting a spring with a with a dustbuster, you can 100% hear it in the track. Um, so that's the hook on that one. So you know, like yeah. I said, it it uh, there's at least some there's some essence of an idea that's that's the starting point, and it, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be like I have this great melody I have to get out right. because I think they specifically uh, to to fully answer your question, the studio said we we don't with with most of the music except for that one track. Uh, the echoes of past features. We don't want to be able to sense any sort of rhythm. Mm. Uh, and we don't even necessarily want it to be like 
chord to chord to chord to chord. Yeah. They, they wanted it to be super droney, super stretched mm-hmm. out. So it was partially my own ideas, but but starts with the uh, the creative direction from the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime I felt like I was veering off into that territory, because you know, as a as a pop background guy, I love writing a little tune, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I had to figure out ways to to break that habit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it was, you know digitizing my old teenage self playing guitar. And sometimes it was, you know, t- instead of using the dust buster to clean my studio, which you could definitely use, it was, uh, it was smashing it into springs. Battery's Casting Shadows is a track that has um, some kind of instrument taking the lead in terms of being that hook or whatever. Can you tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that sound and that track? Okay, so uh, again, I wish I could show you, but I had this, the, I, I, I bought this specifically for this project, but it was uh, something that I've been looking for an excuse to buy, uh, nice. to buy it for years. I have a synthesizer called the Hawken Continuum. Okay. Um, and I encourage people to Google it. Uh, and maybe you can like, on the video, you can flash a picture of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's it's made by um, a professor called Lippold Hawken. That's his name. Uh, H-A-K-E-N. And the instrument is called the Continuum. Um, so he teaches electronic music at University of Illinois, uh, Either Urbana or Champaign, one, one of one of the one of those schools, but somewhere in, in uh, Illinois. It's this, and yeah. so, starting back in the eighties or the nineties, he's a really fascinating guy. I think he's kind of like a genius, and he's also sort of an old, a classic kind of nerd, like the kind that looks like he's got a pocket protector and a slide <laughs> rule in it. I mean, truly, but but a genius. And and yeah. um, he started to his desire was to make a, a keyboard or an electronic synthesizer <clears throat> instrument that would allow you to have the level of expression that a violin has. Cause either, I think the story is either he was a violin player as a kid or his brother was, and, you know, keyboard based instruments, which were, you know, in the sixties and seventies were this amazing revelation. And that mm-hmm. was the, that was what made the most sense in terms of how to get notes out of the electronics was just, you know, basically on off, but using it, uh, using a, a, a musical input device that was familiar to people. But then it got kind of stagnant, right? Like synth- synthesizer development sort of ate, reached an apex in the 80s and then has been sort of frozen in time, right? Yeah. And, and the most interesting stuff has been on the software side. Mm-hmm. But the input device, people try to, you know, figure out ways to get guitars to do it or, uh, you know, your voice or something. But it, but it, it always feels a little weird. And there's nothing that was better than a keyboard. So he spent his whole, his whole his life's work has been to produce an instrument that would allow you to add that level of expression. And so this, this, the Hawken continuum, 
if you look at it, the surface of it has these alternating kind of red and black stripes that are laid out the same way a, key, a piano keyboard are in terms of black and white keys. Okay. But there, but instead of um, the black keys being shorter than the white keys, the, the stripes go fully across the, the, oh, wow. the touch, touch surface. Okay. And the surface itself is made... It, it makes so much sense if you could see the image. So forgive me for having to be overly descriptive. But, no, please, yeah. Um, and I can't, I, it's too big for me to physically show you on camera. Um, <laughs> it's all good. So the surface itself is made out of neoprene, which is like wetsuit oh. material. Yeah. And um, the, the underneath it is extremely complex electronics, springs and sensors and things. Uh, and so the idea is that you can control the, the synthesizer you know, you can change notes and change parameters of the synthesizer by moving left to right on the X axis, right? Yes. So lower, higher, whatever. The Y axis, so up and down, mm-hmm. but then also you can press down into it. So the Z axis, right? And sure. and um, that level of just that addition of expression, X and Y stuff has been around on other control fingerboard type controllers for a while. Mm-hmm. But that that aspect is like opens up this whole different world. And then on yeah. top of that, um, originally it was just a controller for third-party synthesizer software. Then he partnered with some other people to produce a proprietary synth engine, which is so unbelievably complicated <laughs> that I only use presets on it because I don't. <laughs> I, I need like a decade to learn how to program this thing. Wow. But the presets sound amazing. Um, so, it, so it has its own internal engine. It's like it's like a self-contained instrument. Um, and what in talking to people that use use it, and I sort of was dealing with like a uh, an intermediary who was not really the salesman, but a, but a friend of uh, of Lipold that could sort of broker it that lives local in LA. Okay. Um, he was telling me that you know people who approach this as you know piano players that come at this and say, oh, it looks like a piano. I know how to play that. Mm-hmm. Actually, have struggle the most with it, and it's people it. who are used to making music with their hands. So I'm a guitar player, and even though you know this thing is fretless. Uh, in a sense, but I'm and I'm used to fretted instruments. The idea of adding expression with my left hand mm-hmm. is second nature to me. So when I mm-hmm. sit down to play it, I'm not approaching it like a piano. I'm approaching it yeah. like almost like I would a guitar if I if I was laying it flat. Hmm. And the idea of adding that level of expression, you know, vibrato going left to right. Yes. And you know, it's very I mean, the most subtle amount of pressure will change the sound. It's wow. unbelievable. Huh. So that sound that you hear playing and the fact that it does these crazy jump like portamento jumps, like yes. jumping up two octaves, that's me just sliding my finger around on this fingerboard. I think that one has very minimal additional effects on it because the effects in the synth engine that it runs are actually pretty good. Um, and even that level of buzzy sort of distortion is just built built into the sound. It might have some extra reverb on it or something like that. But yeah, that was one that I almost wrote. Some of these I wrote like kind of in real time. You know, it's, it's sort oh, of easy cool. with a drone where you just sort of like lay down two minutes of something. Yep. And then start noodling and say, ah, I think that's good. So that one was one where I had an idea of a melodic shape, and then I just kind of kept developing it. Um, yeah. So anyway, that, very long explanation, but that's what that is. No, so that, I love the that. Hawken continuum, unbelievable instrument. Feels like maybe the first 
real breakthrough in new instrument technology, probably since I would say the original synthesizers, you know, Moog and Oberheim and Ukla yeah. and all that, that whole crew. say about firmament or the process of composing it i'm trying to think there's uh you know one thing i really tried to do on this one was i it, it came at a time where i had the, i had the luxury of time i had just finished up the last guild wars 2 expansion and salt and sacrifice which was a, a mad dash to get to the finish line of that and then all of a sudden i had my schedule was kind of free and clear nice and that was when this came along and i and i had about a six or seven month period where I just had to write, you know, an hour ish of music. Uh, it's not quite an hour, actually 45, 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, what if I did this the slow way, right? Rather than f- I've been so rushed on these last couple mm-hmm. projects. What if I just did this differently? And so I have all these hardware synths. Great. So much of what I did was physically play them in like, a, like an acoustic instrument. And if I didn't get it right, I would hit, you know, hit stop, hit undo and just played in against, you know, when you're, nice. when you're working with MIDI and software and stuff like that, it's so easy to just get everything to line up perfectly, but I wanted it to be electronic music with, you know, just some imperfections in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also, for the effects, I wanted to use uh, a lot of hardware effects instead of plugins. And there's no shortage of plugins, believe me, but um, <laughs> I have a couple, I, I had this, again, I had this idea of really trying not to spoil the story, but this idea of snapshots of technology through time mm-hmm. um, and how that applies to the story of the game and how I could make the music reflect that. So, you know, I have new synthesizers. I have vintage synthesizers. I have new outboard effects, you know, like rack mount effects. I have vintage ones. Mm-hmm. And so I'm using all of those and trying to in- let their imperfections shine through. So whether it's like some low bit rate thing that again you hear all the sort of aliasing up in the in the high frequencies, or some there's there's the 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 VIP or the MVP of this uh, soundtrack is a box called the Eventide Harmonizer, right? And so okay. the Eventide uh, Eventide is they're still around. They're still making both plugins and guitar pedals and processing units and stuff, but they started to appear in the seventies. They're all over those early Brian Eno records and the records that he that he did with David Bowie, the so-called like Berlin trilogy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of quotes of, of them talking about how they had this amazing box and how they sort of discovered it and how the sound of those records was all in this eventide. And it was so futuristic sounding then. And now it sounds a little bit quaint because, you know, <laughs> we're 45 years on. Um, but I still see the, the sort of pinnacle of them was this model that came out in the 80s called the H3000. Mm. That's sort of the most desirable model. I got my hands on one. Nice. I still see, I'll, I'll see pictures of people's studio setups, you know, or or YouTube videos or something now. And I still, they're instantly recognizable because they have a huge dial and a number pad on them. And I, I see them in people's racks all the time. Yeah. And I thought, well, let me, let me just see what it can do that plugins can't do. 
And there's one setting on there called stutter, which this is, uh, again, so apologies for the long ex- explanation, but I find this stuff interesting. And hope maybe one no, other person it. will. Yeah, yeah. Or two. You, you'll find it interesting, but <laughs> maybe a third person will. Um, there's uh, there's a, a sort of semi-viral YouTube video out there called like worst guitar player ever. Let me, let me look it up here. Okay. Um, yep. Worst guitar player ever. Okay. So just Google or go to, go to um, YouTube and type in worst guitar player or worst guitarist ever. Henry Kaiser. That's the name of this video. It's been on YouTube for 10 years. It has 1.3 million views. Okay. Got and it. it. And it's this guy It's a snapshot of a longer video of him just demoing his guitar playing and some of his interesting effects and stuff. He's, he's like an avant-garde experimental guitar player for sure. Okay. Okay. And this is just a, a short snapshot of it. And when I heard it, I get why, I get why they sort of memefied it or tried to make it into a joke because it sounds weird, but that's yeah. the whole point. But when I heard it, I was like, I know exactly what he's doing. It's this one setting on this Eventide. Oh, cool. Um, and what it, so he has it in, adi- with, in addition to the stutter effects, it also um, pits randomly pitch. It's all random. So what it'll do is you play into it. Whatever the electronics do will sort of like randomly grab a snapshot, put it in the, in its memory buffer, and then make completely random stutter sounds and then also randomly pitch shift it down at, you know, the length of the wow. time of the pitch shift is random. The interval is completely random mm-hmm. and he's like playing blues licks into it. And it sounds like a nightmare. Right. Um, <laughs> but I found that effect. I was like, Oh my God, it's that sound. You know, I'd been using it a little bit. And I was like, he's doing the same thing I'm doing. I was like, yeah. I'm on the right track. So that stutter anytime you'll hear it in moments on some of the tracks, but I used it on, I would say maybe half or two thirds of the tracks and mostly on the melody, when you when you hear it, always you always hear it at the very end. Like I said, when when a note plays out, I want you listening the whole time. So as it starts mm-hmm. to die away, you might hear sort of like a you know, sort of mm-hmm. grabbing the sound, and 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 it doesn't sound like it's just being chopped up in a rhythmic way. It's completely random. Hmm. Um, now, having said all that, uh, I used all that stuff, hardware synths, uh, hardware processing. Mm-hmm. I have this. This is the treasure map here because I have pages and pages and pages of notes wow. of settings of like on this track, I used preset number two thirty six, mm-hmm. except I changed this setting from this number to this number. Wow. And what I realized was that that's why nobody uses hardware anymore. They all do it with <laughs> software because when you get to the end of the process and you have to say export every track and send it to a mixer, mm-hmm. well, in software, you open up the session and it's all right there the last the way you saved it the last time before you closed it. Right. When it's hardware, you have to physically turn knobs. And so I have, I have a million pictures on my phone of, of, of hardware settings and a million notes saying like, this is how I did this and this is how I did this. Yeah. And that that was almost a, a full-time job in and of itself was all the music was written. And then I had to take like two, three weeks to export everything and send it to the wow. mixer. And I'd send him something and, a, and he'd be like, I think you've, maybe forgot to say i'm hearing something like this in the reference mix but i'm missing that track so i was like crap and then i go back and redial it all up and oh my god it was such a nightmare so i don't know if for a project i don't know if i'll ever do that again maybe for my own personal work i'll do it yeah but uh but yeah i realized why in 2023 we've we've you can find some of this stuff very cheap because it's it's no longer desirable on a professional level. <laughs> or efficient, yeah, yeah. Certainly not efficient. But but again, like I said, I had the time. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll say about it is, is um, and the end result is what it is. And could I have gotten there with all software and plugins and things? 
Sure. But, but in my mind, the, it's, you know, the, the process is what draws things out of you creatively. I didn't, I didn't want to feel like I was just on autopilot or, you know, doing comfortable and familiar things. And, and for me, the final product is like five, 10, 20% cooler than it would have been if I had done it all the easy way. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what is, you know, as an artist or a creative individual, that to me is the whole point. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted this to feel unique and fully tailored to the game because it deserves it. And, 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 if I, you know, believe that the studio is important, at least important to me, and the games they make are important, and I know that the studio has such a huge, dedicated fan base that is so into what they do specifically, and you know, there needs to be space for that. And 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 I and I, if they care enough to keep the studio afloat for so many years, then I have to care enough with the music. I loved it. I think it's magnificent. I can't wait for the game. And I'm just grateful for another great conversation with you. Thanks so much, McLean. Yeah, thank you, Emily. Uh, I was going to say, I'd like to say this on record. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I um, I appreciate that you dedicate so much of your time and energy to this, fostering the community. This idea of community is something that's been very important to me lately. And, you know, we're so used to this. Ironically, this community is the foundation of it is people sitting alone in a room. <laughs> so, So having someone like you who, you know, take so much of their time to have conversations like this and connect people that are as passionate about it, I think is, is really important. So I, I just want to say thank you for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, McLean. Thank you for listening to Level with Emily. You can learn more about McLean Deemer, see a playlist, and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. Check out the video of my chat with McLean on the Level with Emily YouTube channel. Please like it, subscribe to it, get notifications to it, all those things at our YouTube channel. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hello. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.